What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Insurrection Inc. podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's edition of Insurrection Inc. Uh, you have myself, your sexy main host, Stratty. Main and then, host? Uh, main. My great, <laughs> my great uh, honorable co-host, Jay Porter. <laughs> And AIDS in AIDS, yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah. How y'all doing? This Stratty, week? you want me to pass it on to you, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll do how have y'all been? I haven't really sat down with y'all Jesus in a while. Christ, <laughs> oh god, and is drinking Dr. Pepper, he has inferior soda taste. What do you want me to do, huh, Jay? Not drink Dr. Pepper, all right. I was All doing right. fine until Stratty called himself the main co-host, and now I'm really considering firing him. Everyone enjoy Stratty's last episode on this show. <laughs> okay. Anyway. We haven't really sat down to record together in a while because of life. And- you haven't. Yeah, life. No, you- I have So you've been, you know, you've been cheating on us with another show. A way better show. You found a, you found a friend who's nerdier than us, so you think he's better. I'll tell you what. No, I can't because I'm going to get arrested if I say what I want to say. <laughs> anyway, we got a topic. Porter, you want to tell us about the topic? Uh, yeah, first of all, Law of Liberty probably is objectively better than Insurrection. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> oh, God, he just put out a knife. <laughs> <laughs> You're literally like 800, no, 600 miles away from me. Well, I will make it. This was 10 <laughs> hours of driving. Project through the 10 hours straight of through driving. I'll be there in 10 hours. Either that or he's a really strong arm. <laughs> you can just throw it six. No, miles. Porter knows I can't throw. So peak accuracy. Dude, Jay missed me like throwing a ball of paper at me four feet away in the hotel room in Auburn. There's no way he can hit a knife from 600 miles. <laughs> I actually, I had a set of throwing knives once and I threw them so badly. I lost them in my backyard and never found them again. Bro. <laughs> it's fine. They were like $20 on Amazon, but it's still, I lost them. Yeah, Jay's father hated him, so he never threw a baseball with him in his life. Because not American, first of all, but uh, just just bad parenting and bad people. And that's why you have Jay now, the way he is. Yeah, well, instead of teaching me how to throw a ball, they put me in martial arts. So fuck you. Mm-hmm. I don't know martial arts, but I can run faster than you, so I don't have to. <laughs> There's these things called guns. I don't know why you always go back to running. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did you need martial you arts if you have guns? Well, I I can also use a gun. Like I, I don't need to know but martial arts. You don't arts. have one. I don't have one. That see, that's a. Pro- we're trying, okay? Oh, we're <laughs> that's trying. Cool. That's why it's been months and you still don't have one. The They've topic today is war, dude. They don't have shit. Porter. <laughs> Thank you, Aiden. <laughs> the topic today say, is war. Aiden? The topic <laughs> today is war. <laughs> it was just one big dick <laughs> measuring contest out of nowhere. <laughs> Speaking of war, right yeah. now. One happening as we speak. Uh, anyway, so yeah, between between yeah, but it's, it's Armenia and Azerbaijan. Who cares? Hey, 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 hey. Hold I was on. talking about the conflict between you and Porter, but I mean, that was. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I, Porter. Before away. we get into Armenia, Azerbaijan, I, I think we were going to start with the, uh, well, whatever we were going to start with, we didn't, but now we're going to get into <laughs> the kind of ethics of war. This is something that not. Um, not a lot of online libertarians think about. Um, it's it's something that 
intellectuals in the libertarian tradition have always considered very strongly. Um, but there's always been very strong anti-war libertarians uh, going back to, I, I mean, you can think of the first anti-war people probably in ancient Rome and Greece. And then uh, more recently, I mean, Lysander Spooner was against the American Civil War and uh, Murray Rothbard took significant inspiration from him. Uh, Rothbard, of course, was himself extremely anti-war. Um, now you've got a, a whole anti-war tradition, and especially Tom Woods, I think, is a great anti-war voice. Now Scott Horton, obviously, is probably the best one we have. Um, but even other economists in the Austrian tradition, like Walter Block and Hans Hermann Hoppe, have all written great things um, against war. But this is something that the average person certainly doesn't think about very much and, until the war actually happens on their doorstep. And uh, it's, it's something that is kind of a blind spot uh, for a lot of online libertarians who aren't in this uh, super serious intellectual tradition. And I think it's led to uh, some, of the, some of the places where the ideology has gone astray, maybe, um, if that's what you want to call it, like with the Boogaloo Boys and stuff, um, who might have like a healthy amount of respect for, but I think they're wrong in the sense that they have this glorification of the idea of a civil war. And I think that comes from a lack of understanding about why libertarians have always been anti-war in the first place. Uh, so with that, I wanted to, uh, this is why I had the idea for this episode. I wanted to go over kind of the uh, ethics of, of war from a libertarian standpoint, um, how it enlarges the state, how it's, you know, the manifestation of the state's aggression in its worst form, and also the history of the development of warfare to, to where we are now. Um, so anyone else want to pick up from there? Stratty, I know you've got some good stuff to talk about in this regard. Yeah, I wanna, so just, I wanna, no, I want to interject real quick. Just, just a quick thing. Yeah, fuck you, Stratty. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Stratty. <laughs> it's your first show back. You don't get to speak. No, he's done. Like, he did a Tom DeLorenzo episode. But, that's, but besides the point. For, I, I just wanted to know why I would say you have respect for Boogaloo Boys. Like, you don't have to lie to them. They don't listen to our show. We scared them off episodes ago. I mean, I... I understand the frustration and I think they've actually done some good outreach. Like the, the significant majority of Boogaloo boys are extremely young. Uh, and I think it's good <laughs> yeah. to have, I think it's good to have young kids in this movement, but I, I do think it's bad to mislead them and make them think libertarianism is all about uh, gun rights and gun rights only. First of all, yeah. that's a big focus, which is perfectly fine as a hobby, but like, that's not what Liberty is. It doesn't stop there. And also to think that the only strategy for it is to <laughs> buy a bunch of guns and hope the country collapses. I mean, it's always good to be prepared, but I, the glorification of the Civil War really, really bugs me. Um, so I, I, I respect, respect them in the sense that, especially some of them who aren't uh, begging for a Civil War, some of the more intellectual ones uh, certainly don't glorify it, but they're, they're more on the prepper side. I have a ton of respect for those people, uh, even though, I may maybe a little bit more optimistic than they are. I, I can totally side with that, with the, the prepper side. Um, but yeah, I, I don't like the glorification of civil war, but I, I do have a healthy respect for them just uh, for the outreach that some of them do. Libertarian Renegade comes to mind with his Snapchat groups and stuff. Um, Which are full of brain dead boog boys. Yeah, I, I didn't really have much uh, utility with those uh, group chats. They're I'm good. not saying they're the best thing <laughs> in the world, but like, it's better than nothing. We I, had a theory that he was a fed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but another quick interjection that isn't just a shit on Stratty. Um, 
if if anybody who's listening to our show isn't uh, is still not you know after you know listening to this uh, completely um, sold on the idea of the libertarians' idea of what war is, uh, I would recommend looking at Ron Paul's 2012 uh, campaign ad. Where yeah, oh my gosh, I can't believe I left oh that name goodness. out. Hold it, on. Yeah, Ron Paul's yeah, that that campaign ad was just so good at just hey, let's save the Ron Paul thing for the end because I kinda have a thing for oh, that. Go go ahead. I just have I have something that I was gonna pull out for that. Campaign ad, it's great. Strategy, yeah. go ahead. We, we can, I want to talk about that, but I do have something yeah. I'm gonna pull out for okay. to talk about Ron Paul specifically. But uh I'll save it. I hope I'll it's not your it. dick. To um <laughs> go off your point about what you said about how war expands the state and gives the state more power. I mean, the perfect example that anyone listening to this uh, show will be able to um, kind of understand and give some relative, relativism towards is uh, 9-11. Uh, post 9-11, we had the Patriot Act get introduced. Um, we went into two different wars under Bush and then five uh, conflicts under Obama. And uh, not only has it increased the American empire overseas, we're in seven countries plus more. Um, it's also, you know, hurt us domestically. Like, uh, like I said, the Patriot Act, they're spying on us. They get to do this now and uh, nothing, you know, nothing uh, can get them in trouble. It can only get us in trouble. And also um, the TSA, uh, it's hard for anyone to fly. I mean, and now, good luck not getting molested trying to get on a, a plane. I mean, there's, I mean, one out of 20 people they let just go right through, but it's rare. Um, also, just looking at, like, uh, as the military has become more powerful around the world, look at the police here at home. They've become more militarized. Um, their weaponry, um, their tactics, it, it comes from the military. So, yeah, that's a very important thing to keep in mind is that the more war is uh, tackled and uh, fought by the state, the more powerful the state grows. And that's no good for anyone foreign or domestic. Uh, no one really wins except for the state and their elite when it comes to these things. So I think that is probably... I mean, there's a lot of important things to hammer home when talking about the subject of war, but that's that may be the most important one. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an important point that you make is that it, it comes home um, mm -hmm. and the domestic militarization of the police and stuff like that, that. That comes from two things. One, they're getting the surplus military equipment once it gets retired from the military because it was all you know, built up and uh, they, they all the excessive military spending and all that, all that uh, surplus has to go somewhere and so they send it to domestic police forces it's not just to patrol afghanistan anymore when it gets retired but it's not past its useful lifespan it becomes used on the american citizens instead uh, but also it, it's not just excesses of foreign wars it's domestic wars declared at home uh, the war on drugs is called the war on drugs for a reason it is very much a war and that's where a lot of the military comes from as well they fund it and they fight it like a war uh, and it's directly against our own citizens you don't have to like drugs or drug dealers but 
the the point of I mean, what's a classic lesson about war is that it never just affects the the combatants. There are always people caught in the middle, always civilians. That's that's part of the reason it's against libertarian ethics. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the same thing, same exact thing happens with domestic wars. It's not like the war on drugs is any exception. Uh, it's not like well just don't sell drugs and you won't be a victim of it. That's, that's not how it works. You can always be a victim of excessive state power. So that's another reason libertarians have always been against war is, is that it, it will, will be used against you at some point. You will well, be a victim of it. And also look at the, the war on terror. I mean, Bush launched that claiming we were going against terrorists in the Middle East, but it's been brought home. Now there's terrorists uh, in America that our government needs to crack down on and essentially, during the Obama administration, the IRS became one of the armies of the war on terror by going to right-wing groups and shutting them down with uh, their claims of them not paying taxes and such. They specifically target these people. So not only does it grow the state um, and you know all of that stuff that we just uh, went upon, but it weaponizes the state even more and it also limits us and our freedoms even more. You can barely uh, speak out against the state and get a following anymore without being considered an enemy, being considered yeah. a terrorist, not just by the government, but by the, by the people who are uh, patriotic, so to say, mm-hmm. and believe in the government. They will yeah. see you as terrorists. Look at Edward Snowden. Uh, well, Snowden sad. is not a terrorist, but that is definitely a limited hangout. Like, you want to look at somebody that's actually persecuted to look at Julian Assange. Yeah. Snowden is, but something interesting, you guys were hitting on it. Of course the war comes home and you know, look at war on drugs, the surplus that the police get from the military because it's not being used anymore. But another thing is the militarization of the people because Pat Watson, who we had on a few weeks ago, he didn't talk about it on our episode, but he talked about it on an episode he did with Pete Quinones. A majority of the police are all former military mm. and they come they're they're trained for something this is the definition of the hammer that only sees nails like you take these young guys right out of high school you know you it's very predatory like that uh what's that mean the army recruiter meme where it's like instead of the coomers the army recruiter oh yeah <laughs> it's like you're so mature for your age Haha, <laughs> you have a low IQ. Wow. We shit like that. And it's like they're, they're specifically targeting people that they know might not have all the best mental faculties or they're taking from the opposite end. They're taking smart people to try and get them into universities like West Point. So they get a position immediately in the military that's high ranking and take out of this resource pool right, for right. years to come by pushing them up the ranks of the military. But that's another thing. Come back. That's another thing about the economics of war, if I can interrupt for a mm-hmm. second, is, is that uh, I think Tom Woods has addressed this. He's certainly not the first one, but he summed it up pretty well uh, in a lecture at a Mises U one year just called War. You can find it on YouTube. Um, he, he talks about how there's an intellectual drain that uh, t- because a war, a war economy pushes all the scientists towards mm-hmm basically developing things that kill other people and destroy things across the world instead of towards things that satisfy our wants and increase our productivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that has long-term effects, of course. Mm -hmm. It's not just, um, it's not just uh, the opportunity cost. It's uh, of 
right, of not yeah. having those things, those inventions that would actually help us, not just having them sooner. But the cost is more than that because uh, the, the cost is one higher destruction because they, I mean, the scientists are usually successful about finding better ways <laughs> yeah. to blow things up and kill people. Uh, and then the, the cost isn't just having those things sooner. It's what could we do with those things that they would have invented if they weren't uh, working towards the war effort. Uh, and, and so it's like a compounding uh, opportunity cost actually. Uh, and so the, the cost to us actually is pretty much incalculable. You mm -hmm. can't even imagine how much better off we would be uh, because there's no, no, there's no historical counterfactual that we can compare it to empirically. We just know we would be better off uh, mm -hmm. without this, this intellectual drain created by the war. But we literally can't even imagine how much better off we would be. Uh, and, and that's something that's completely uh, underrated, I think, in, in considering the costs mm -hmm. of war. Um, because, I mean, that's just one aspect of it. And you can think about how huge of, yeah. uh, of an influence that has. It, it's that a drain even, on everything. Yeah, that doesn't it's even a, get into uh, a, the fact that it's a drain on physical resources as well, of course. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a destruction of resources. When you blow up someone's house, <laughs> they don't have a house anymore. Like, and then you have to go rebuild it, or they have to go rebuild it, of course. And, you know, those resources that they used to rebuild it could have been used to build something else. And so uh, there's, I mean, you know, there's a similar effect on uh, material resources, but the intellectual part is uh, something important to consider because, you know, all entrepreneurship and innovation is originally an intellectual before it manifests itself physically at all. It has to be intellectual. Uh, it's in the mind of the creator. And I mean, uh, that's, like you a, know, war is a drain on everything, like Jay, like yeah. Jay said. And well, a, like a funny point to bring up, and I'm sure Aiden knows a, a bit about this as well, is like, I mean, yeah, it's literally a drain on everything. And uh, one thing that it's a drain on that people probably wouldn't expect is professional sports. Uh, in <laughs> World War II, they drafted like Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams, all the best players were going to war. Uh, it's, it's just crazy. Elvis, like they're, they're bleeding entertainment as well. Yeah. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're bleeding entertainment as well. But also, yeah, because what makes it's taken fun here because it's oh, taken sorry. from everything. Um, but also, like it's taken, yeah, with and, and that's just conscription, right? Um, once we got rid of conscription, right, and we went to a, a more you know voluntary military, um, yeah, a mercenary <laughs> army, exactly. But also with like, yeah, exactly. But and also the incentives are just wildly messed up because like for one, a warrior class is mm -hmm. created. Right. And that's why you see a bunch of people signing up today is because, oh, well, my dad was a was a badass in the army or, you know, um, my grandpa served in World War Two and kicked some Nazi ass and shit like that. And it's just like and, and I'm going to go and fight these Middle Eastern farmers who have nothing to do with me or any of my, you know, they, they literally did nothing. They couldn't to afford me. a plane ticket out of their own country, let alone to the United yeah. States. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and then, of course, you've got the other incentive issues like, oh, we'll give you free college. We'll give you, yeah. you know, here's your bonus for a 25% ARP Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But and it's just that's the that's the whole thing. It's that that's how messed up it is. Even when we get rid of the um, the slavery of conscription, right? We still have the state successfully um, taking these probably like what would have been most likely brilliant mm -hmm. minds um, contributing to the production of the economy and throwing them into just yeah. a hellhole. Yeah. Conscription versus. Uh... Voluntary army is actually something I want to touch on later because it's something I've thought for a while, but it 
on every level, you're draining people out of the economy because for the people that are just becoming grunts on the ground, they could have done literally anything else. That could have been unskilled labor for some entrepreneur that has a startup. That could have been labor in some other, other section. For the people that go to West Point or whatever, the, the Naval Academy, and they come out officers, they come out all this, and they climb the ranks, those could have been people that filled leadership positions in companies. They could have done something else. Like you said, the, the scientists that get signed up to develop weapons for Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and all that so they can drop bombs on people. You're looking at draining resources from everything. But then those people, those people that become the soldiers, that they become the Marines, they become all that. And they're trained for one job. They're trained to kill. They come back and basically the best job that's offering them is police. And then you're using language like the war on drugs. So you're taking these people that you've turned into warriors. They were not killers before this. They didn't pick up a gun one day and be like, Hey, I want to kill people until the military came around and said, Hey, you want to go over and kill some really poor farmers in some country you can't even put on a map. Then you take them back home. You give them all the same gear they had before. Cause you know, when we talk about the militarization of the police, sure. A lot of police are people that never joined the military, but then what happens to the guys that were in the military and can start going up into agencies like the SWAT, they can go into ATF, FDA, they can go in all of these things, the DEA, you give them all of their old military gear. You're giving them rifles that they used in Afghanistan, in Iraq. You're giving them body armor that is maybe better than what they had in Afghanistan and Iraq. You're telling them that they're fighting the war on drugs. They're fighting the war on terror. You're putting them back in the exact same mindset they were in overseas, but now you're turning them against your own citizens, and that's why it comes home, because they're pulling from the same pool they had before. And that's, like, my issue. Like, so... And that's, that's why I don't like um, cops as much as I do, right? Because like, I, can, I can give a little bit for like guys in the military since they're like, you know, they're 18, 19, they're uh, probably stupid <laughs> or something. No. Um, <laughs> but no, but they, like, they don't really know what they're, because it's, it's sort of the us versus them mentality, because they're over there. Like they're way, like 3,000 miles away. And it's sort of, it doesn't make sense to me at all. But I can understand why they wouldn't like have a moral issue. It's like, well, we got to get them so they come. But like when you're at home and you're, you know, oppressing your countrymen, essentially, like that's just unexcusable. I do agree that they don't necessarily recognize a lot of the guys who go over there don't necessarily recognize that what they're doing is as evil as it is. But I actually do think morally it's worse uh, to, to go overseas and kill other people, you know, to wage war against other countries rather than your own people, uh, which seems, you know, somewhat backwards in what we think of um, for good reason. But I, I think it's worse because, I, I mean, I'm not obviously in favor of democracy. <laughs> I'm not a, a fan <laughs> of it. But uh, to a certain extent, we do have some control over our political institutions. And uh, I wouldn't say it's us oppressing ourselves when this happens but like you can vote for and against it which doesn't have i mean you know it's not much but the people that we go and you know bomb three thousand miles across the globe have absolutely no say in this they they did not choose it at all and uh, there's something particularly evil about that uh not to mention that most of these people are, are poorer than anyone in the united states like you think the probably the the average person in Yemen 
is poorer on a material level than the average homeless person in the United States mm-hmm. and at this point. It wasn't always like that. Yemen was a pretty prosperous country yeah. uh, for its geographic location for a while, but um, thanks to continued sanctions and mm-hmm. the American-Saudi alliance bombing the shit out of it for a decade, uh, <laughs> now the, the poorest person in Yemen is unimaginably unimaginably poor compared to even the poorest person in the United States. Uh, It's something that Dave Smith likes to bring up. Um, He he talks, he was talking about sanctions one time with Scott Horton. He says they always use sanctions as a way, like they they say it's a a measure to avoid war, but still put pressure on the regime. Uh, But but that's a, it's just a, a twist of words. Like what you call pressure is, isn't really putting pressure on the re- regime that's damaging the economy uh, of everyday people. And you're, you're, you know, this is, these are the poorest people in the world because of yeah. what you're already doing and you want to make them even poorer. These are people poorer than the poorest person, you know, and what, what sanctions are is not pressure on the re- regime. It's pressure on the people to overthrow the regime, but it's, it's starvation. It's not what you call pressure is, is starving people to death and hoping that they get mad enough to overthrow their rulers when you're the one doing it. Yeah. Cause look at Cuba. They've been under sanctions for 60 years. That hasn't stopped the Castro's from eating well and living well. It just stops the yeah. Cubans from having anything and they're not overthrow because they're starving now. What the fuck are they going to do? Well, and also like a good example of a a country in Africa that was once war-torn and notoriously uh, poor uh, and went through famine and hunger was Ethiopia. In the 70s and 80s, they were under the rule of the Derg, who was controlled by the Soviet Union, and they had a civil war and they had conflicts with other countries. Now they're one of the most rapidly developing countries in uh, Africa, if not all of the world, and they're not involved in any wars. And people are going there to get jobs now. So that says a lot about the damage war has uh, upon a society, a nation, mm-hmm. an economy, and whatever else. Yeah, I mean, this, it's a completely backwards theory. And that's because they're not actually doing what, they're, what they say they're trying to do. You don't, you don't make people more independent and less dependent on authority by making them poor and desperate. You, you know, people are only only ready to you know overthrow their authority if worse comes to worse, or uh, simply reduce its power. You know, fight for more rights for themselves uh, when they're independent, when they don't rely on the state or their rulers uh, for all of their subsistence, for any mercy from uh, the the ruling class. Um, in in libertarian class theory, not Marxist, not in the Marxist sense, obviously, but. Uh, so the sanctions theory is completely backwards. You don't make people more willing to overthrow their rulers when they get desperate and poor. You make them less willing. And, and so the question is, why do, why do our political elites still do this? Why do they still believe it? And that's because they're not doing what they say they're, what they say they're trying to accomplish. The sanctions aren't actually to avoid war. They don't want to avoid war. They don't care. And, <laughs> and so uh, we have to have a, and- a different understanding of, of what war is to the state and it's always beneficial. It's always beneficial to the state as long as they win. Of course, if they uh, get attacked by another state, it's a little bit different. That's, you know, a defensive war, so to speak. Um, and, and I can talk and, about that more in a second, but 
uh, or if they, you know, get too cocky and start a war and then lose, like uh, Germany in World War II comes to mind. Um, and, you know, then it's not beneficial to the state otherwise. But uh, this is something that, that's where the evolution of war has come from as well. Something I've been thinking about. I'm by no means a geopolitical expert, obviously. But I've, I've been thinking there are two general types of wars. Um, uh, all wars are political, mm-hmm. pretty much, in, in the sense that uh, they use um, manipulation of the masses via force, uh, which is, you know, aggression. Um, it, it necessarily has to be aggression. Therefore, it violates libertarian principles uh, to manipulate the masses to achieve some goal of a few people, uh, the elites, the ruling classes. So and, wars are, are political, in my opinion, even even ones that might be justified, like the American Revolution. I think you could justify that on libertarian ethics. Um but then out of that, I think there are two general types we can identify. Uh, something I call maybe a, a dispute war, like disputed territory or a religious dispute or an ethnic dispute. Um, like it, it's mostly ethnic and territorial right now in the uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Uh, so that'd be like one of those uh, dispute wars. And then there's imperialist wars, which is something that's that megastates, you know, ones that are much more... Uh, resource heavy, much larger, much more powerful than uh, the states they wage war against. That's, that's the type of, of war that, uh, that these states wage. And that would be uh, like the American wars in the Middle East and proxy wars in South America and stuff. And a border, uh, I want to interject real quick because sure. I wanted to talk about, you know, I want to hit on the, what you said about sanctions because there's a great historical example to bring up here and that's Pearl Harbor. Um, we had the government had intel a year in advance that the Japanese had plans for an attack on Pearl Harbor and uh, implemented the embargo to uh, induce those attacks. And um, look what happened. And that and uh, another a great quote that simply kind of exemplifies everything you talked about there. And I'm going to butcher the name, but it's from Frederick Bastitat. And Bastia. it's um, Bastia. Bastia, yeah. And it's if you know if goods <laughs> if goods don't cross borders, our uh, soldiers will. Mm-hmm. And that is has been exemplified yep. uh, throughout history many times. And even if soldiers aren't crossing borders, well, a conflict is going to arise. Like Jay brought up Cuba. Um, obviously, Cubans have had animosity towards America forever, unless they've came over here. But um, it, it doesn't it doesn't create anything good. Sanctions lead to nothing good. And uh, it, it just reminded me of, you know, I've been learning a lot more about protectionism and thinking about it recently. And uh, I had Jeff Dice on law of Liberty uh, a couple episodes ago. And I asked him about, you know, Pat Buchanan's economic stances. And he said, well, you know, those people, they just need to honestly come out and say, we're willing to sacrifice good economics for uh, to uphold our culture. Well, how are you going to uphold your culture if uh, your bad economics is going to induce problems that attack your culture, that attack your society Mm -hmm. and hurt your people? So I think there's no excuse for protectionism and uh, that kind of thinking needs to be attacked whenever it can be. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, before I go on with my talking about imperialist wars, that's something else. Your culture point is important. That's something that uh, Hoppe has talked about. Because, uh, I mean, you, he might be personally, uh, culturally on the right. I'm not sure uh, actually what his beliefs are. Certainly he thinks it's 
more conducive to, to libertarianism to have culturally right-wing views. Uh, and so he's, uh, he's anti-mass immigration, which I tend to take Walter Block's opinion on immigration over Hoppo's, but something Hoppo does get right is uh, he says, if you need one, one reason that's kind of right-wing to end the wars, if, if you didn't have enough already, is that uh, when you, when you, you know, Syria is an example, when you bomb the shit out of other people's countries, they tend to leave and then they got to go somewhere. And uh, so, so why do you think you have a wave of hundreds of thousands of Syrian immigrants into Europe? It's because we, we keep attacking their country. We destabilized their country on purpose and started a civil war there. And uh, it's not like their government was great. I mean, uh, what's his name? The dictator that I... Assad, yeah, it's not like Assad was a, a wonderful person, but Syria was relatively stable until uh, European and U.S. meddling in, in their affairs. And then you got a wave of hundreds of thousands of Syrian immigrants whose culture is completely incompatible with that of traditional Europe's. And so, of course, right-wing groups have opposed the immigrants without thinking about the root cause that they're there in the first place. Of yeah. course, what Hoppe has identified is when you have these cultural and ethnic strifes, you're less likely to have, uh, you know, peaceful cooperation, which is the first prerequisite of any libertarian society. And you're more, less likely to have, uh, you know, a, a decentralization of government or uh, a relaxed government because people try to force their opinions on each other politically and try to, you know, get laws to uh, handle the, the problems caused by these immigrants. And, and so the cultural strife is a, a real problem for libertarian strategy. And that's another thing that comes from war that, that Hoppe has identified. It's just and, one more reason to oppose it. And another example, uh, and I think like, that's a good example, which you brought up with Syria, but I think a better one would be Libya. Libya was looked at as the country to be in Africa all the way up until uh, what America did in 2011. Now, again, you know, Assad is not exactly a good guy. Gaddafi wasn't exactly a good guy either. But the only war he ever launched that uh, I can think of off the top of my head is the war with Chad that Libya had. And uh, Gaddafi was anti-imperialist. He wasn't wishing for any other country's help, nor was he wishing to oppress any other country outright. So uh, when America did what they did, now Libya is war-torn it's a shithole country mm -hmm. they're in the middle of a civil war and now they have a slave trade going on there and uh and that, i mean that's just and wasn't huh and wasn't Gaddafi <laughs> yeah, thanks, like, Obama. uh yeah th right um but wasn't Gaddafi also like sort of warming up to like mm -hmm. the west yeah. they're warming up to like a and lot he was of also the barrier country. for yeah. all immigration coming from africa into europe <laughs> yeah he also right. he also um, wanted like a Pan African gold standard. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder why they killed him. Yeah, I can't imagine yeah. why he was overthrown mm. by the U.S. government. Yeah. Libya was actually the first <laughs> war I ever opposed. I just want to take a quick break to announce that we have a Patreon now, where you can support us with money for some reason. That is Patreon.com/slash/InsurrectionInc. And if you don't want to support us with fiat, you can go to Float.app/slash/InsurrectionInc. That is F-L-O-T-E.app and give us cryptocurrency. And if you don't want to give us money monthly, because why would you? You can go on down to our merch shop and pick something you like. Links will be in the description, and don't forget to join our Discord. Now back to the show. Same with uh, another person that was kind of 
interrelated with uh, uh, Gaddafi in this way, and this is kind of an offshoot, but just someone our listeners might be interested in learning about is Thomas Sankara, <laughs> another person that Western interest went against and basically had killed. So, I mean, yeah, our warfare, uh, even with whenever America's not directly involved, is big time influenced by our empire. Mm-hmm. And also, um, another thing, like, to touch up on, like, the sort of protectionism, it, it's really sad to see that, mercan- like, aspects of mercantilism just don't <laughs> die. <laughs> like, it just, it's the worst economic system that probably, like, everyone shits on mercantilism. Socialists, capitalists, like, everybody. It was just such a bad system, and yet aspects of it still One exist. One more thing to bring up before we move on from this because i just want to it's kind of a funny point to bring up is so many protectionists like uh you know i'm a big fan of pappy cannon and tucker carlson they're anti-war but they don't really they don't realize it's their bad economics that induces it uh many times so uh just uh you know if you're a protectionist and listening to this if you really care about being anti-war that much you should really improve your economics mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned, before we get too far away from this topic, I want to go back to your Bastiat quote that you mentioned, when goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. Uh, You know, since Adam Smith, at least, uh, maybe even before then, there were some theorists who thought of this, but I mean, Adam Smith was was the one who really developed this idea of the division of labor. And then, of course, Ludwig von Mises and uh, Rothbard and everyone since then uh, have recognized this, the importance of the, uh, the division of labor because it represents the highest form of social cooperation that we have. It's, it's peaceful cooperation to produce for each other in our own self-interest. It's a, a kind of a beautiful system, really. And the international division of labor represents international cooperation. It's the, the highest expression of, of peace. And so when you, when you block goods from being exchanged across national lines, that's a disruption of the international division of labor, which is a disruption of this, this peaceful, productive order and so it's inevitable that you create war when you disrupt trade uh, because you're, you're necessarily disrupting the one thing that makes us all cooperate in our own self-interest. Uh, it's not out of altruism that we cooperate, but we, we cooperate with each other through the division of labor because it makes us materially better off. And so, so when you destroy that division of labor, uh, of course war happens, of course conflict happens. You, you destroyed the one thing that makes us all unite. So I got a question for you guys. And this is something I've thought of for a long time. Conscription versus the mercenary army we have now known as volunteering. Now, obviously, on a moral grounds, conscription is the worst, worst form of it. There's no contesting that, right? Right. Like you're just you're forcibly taking somebody out of their home. It's yeah. Essentially. You're forcibly slave. taking yeah. someone out of their home, giving them a gun, and sending them off to another country. But it's slavery, but you're forced to murder people instead of pick cotton yeah (laughs) yeah but on a utilitarian ground i've thought for a while that since conscription is so egregious that it's actually what helps end war sooner because we've seen anti-war movements throughout basically every war until conscription ended yeah because in vietnam the mass protests throughout all of vietnam to end the war World War One, people burning draft cards. In New York City, there were riots in the Civil War because people were being conscripted to go kill Southerners. 
those were some of the most destructive riots in American history. But then we end conscription and you start seeing that, well, suddenly people get this idea that because soldiers are signing up for it, that the war isn't as egregious. So therefore there must be a good reason. Otherwise these people wouldn't be going and they're sacrificing their lives. So we can't critique it. I mean, they chose to do it and they're sacrificing. So how can you critique our veterans? And the anti-war movements that do pop out of these voluntary quote unquote wars um, the sort of wars that are popped up and using voluntary armies, they're sort of, sort of, they're just in the back alley, right? They're just sort of, nobody really pays attention to them. And, and I mean, people care, but they, it's not to the point where it's extreme passion mm-hmm. against whatever war, like people might be like, Oh, you know, I, you know, war is, war is bad and everything, but, it is what it is. And it's like, whereas in Vietnam and every single war before that, people were just like, no, 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 this is yeah. stupid. We should be not yeah. doing Like this. in Vietnam time, you had people were like, I know people were actually scared. Like uh, my dad always tells me kids older than him in school, they didn't think of having a future. They just thought they were going to go to Vietnam and get their heads blown mm-hmm. off. Hmm. And uh, they were legit scared. They didn't, they didn't think this was a war they had to go fight. Whereas guys I went to high school with were like excited to graduate and then go sign up for the military because they wanted to go kill some Muslims in the Middle East because that's their American duty and 9-11 makes them angry and they don't actually understand why 9-11 happened or or what these these people are not our enemies they don't even know you dude they don't have any idea what America is like they don't even have a cell phone that's relevant to and most of the time those people aren't even fighting terrorists they're fighting yeah 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 these people are not terrorists they're defending their homeland you're telling me america americans wouldn't do the same if the shit if the roles were reversed war is terrorism with a bigger budget (laughs) it really is politicians are terrorists with licenses (laughs) yeah (laughs) but you know it really is a difference like the difference between you have a son and one day some men in suits come around hand him a card and say hey you're going off to this country your son is being forced out of your house and he has no choice in it. He's probably going to go die in that country. That's heartbreaking. That's infuriating yeah. versus, well, my son is an American hero because he signed up for this. He chose to do this. So, you know, he's showing his allegiance to his country. It's a strong psychological tool. So as, as awful as conscription is, I think it's a huge limiter in how long a war can go on because it was absurd how long vietnam went on with conscription and people were sick of it that's why nixon got elected he promised to get out of the war but then you have afghanistan where people are sick of it but they apparently don't care all that much when trump doesn't hold up on his promise of pulling out and it's the longest war in our history right there are two points here i think one is yeah that's actually a really good point that when there's conscription there's a there's more of a, a movement against it, I guess, because, you know, you, you're scared, you don't want to go, and then you're forced to anyway, rather than choosing to go. One thing is uh, to get people to choose to go, the propaganda state has to be increased mm. tenfold just to, you know, I mean, from from elementary school, you, I mean, you're, you're made to take the Pledge of Allegiance every day and uh, <laughs> have a moment of silence with the flag waving in the room or whatever, and uh, it's literally indoctrination of, yeah. of small children. So creepy. And then thinking back, and they used to do the Roman so salute for the flag. Mm-hmm. And then, 
There's a whole, I mean, we talk <laughs> about the military industrial complex. Think about the military credit complex. There's, I have this theory. I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, if it's completely unfounded or, or what. I think to a certain degree, the state has deliberately increased the cost of college in, in recent decades. Oh, yes. As military recruiting has become more difficult, especially as, I mean, the Afghanistan war is the longest war in U.S. history, and people are getting tired of it even now, even though it doesn't, uh, it still doesn't affect their lives very much, which is the second part of what I want to talk about in response to Jay. But the credit companies and, and the federal government, of course, because they're the biggest issuer of student loans, they, uh, they share information with military recruiters, like kids who, who are less likely to be able to pay off their debt and have, uh, have more financial strain. They share the contact information of those kids with military recruiters. It is downright evil. They, that's how they get these kids information and how they push them to go to war. And so it looks voluntary on the surface, of course, but it's all tied up together. And like Porter, like a, uh, that's a great point because it kind of, I want to piggyback off that because there's some, there's a point I want to make. And um, like, yeah, I mean, the most anti-draft president this country has ever had. And I talked about this with my dad about a week ago was Ronald Reagan. My dad voted for Reagan just because he was anti-draft and my dad didn't want to be conscripted uh barry goldwater actually was against yeah as well I, obviously he was never a president but yeah um, carl hess talks about that a good bit in the death of politics his essay it's uh pretty enlightening because uh goldwater was not liked for that position yeah and <laughs> yeah whenever ronald reagan was our president it was the 80s and if we look back on the 80s that's when uh propaganda was at an all-time high and like the propaganda was so in a way enjoyable that outlandish is a good word (laughs) yeah like i mean even i like have fun looking at the propaganda because it's just good art it's good art it's funny messages and like uh i yesterday on my instagram story i shared this one and you shared it too porter just because it was crazy (laughs) support the the, nicaraguan uh, freedom fighters right yeah save the contras (laughs) that it's like a Or the oh, end of and the end of Rambo yeah. three. Oh yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> this movie right. was dedicated to the brave Mujahideen <laughs> fighters of Afghanistan. That aged and very also, well. Uh, <laughs> under Reagan, our military expanded more than under any other president ever, except maybe this one. And um, like, uh, so yeah, I mean, there's you guys are, are making great points and going off what you just said, Porter, about the credit. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you know all this college student loan debt a lot of it grew out of the 80s and and strategy that is such a crazy thing that you just brought to my mind so vietnam was the first televised war yeah. right like that was the first time we saw journalists going in and recording the carnage that was happening and people hated it like you had you had videos of carpet bombing farms and dropping napalm and all these poor villagers that also Vietnam, poorest shit country. Even to this day, it's not that rich. Apparently, there's still a one-party communist state. I did not know that until a few months ago. But, uh, but you had all, and this this was horrible for people. This was horrifying. But then you fast forward to George H. W. Bush and the first Gulf War, and even Tom yeah. Woods has talked about this. So like, on the TV, people are they're getting excited because they're seeing a bunch of poor people getting blown up by mm-hmm. fighter jets. 
And it's this huge propaganda where it's like, it went from, hey, these are the horrors of Vietnam to, oh my God, look at how awesome the first Gulf or the Gulf War at that point, how awesome the Gulf War is. Look, America, is, we're blowing shit up. Hoorah, the military brothers. media complex the is another one of those complexes. Yeah, it's the, that's, that's the disgusting thing about this state is they take, like, they take things that would be normally seen as, you know, as video evidence of how disgusting war is. And then they flip the narrative yes. to make it, it's just terrible. Like, it's awful. It's what's disgusting. crazy is that Colin Powell and Norman Schwarzkopf were considered celebrities at one point in America. <laughs> like they were going to celebrity events at like, mm. that's crazy. And uh, like, like Jay, I know me and you've talked about this and I fully do believe it. I love these games and I'll play them. I'll play them whenever they come out. But Video games like Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, uh, Battlefield, all these video game series. And those names, Call of Duty, of Medal Honor, of yeah. Honor. Battlefield. The names, yeah. <laughs> yes, like they are made to convince young men that war is cool and honorable. Like, look, dude, the fact that the storylines, like the plots can make us feel emotional when we play these games, it kind of puts in a sense of like in this mm-hmm. young man that, oh my God war can get me in sense of my feelings <laughs> like, one and it's a one meme thing, now but press f to pay respects yeah <laughs> yeah yeah like um but one thing one thing that speaking of, of call of duty campaigns though one thing that i do applaud is when it shows sort of like the the, the most recent one the modern warfare one actually shows the horror yeah, it, of war it can be a good tool. Um, and Absolutely. that's the thing i applaud is like when um uh the the clean house that one where you're you know going through a house and kicking in doors and um you know shooting terrorists and killing the bad guys but when when you get to that one room where the woman is about to grab the detonator like you don't know that but you have to put her down anyway and it's that's just it shows like how awful you know the whole situation is and then of course when it got to that like kid scene where you're the child like that was messed up too but you know what something interesting do you guys remember the video game the line yes yeah oh yeah yeah so that was a game that it sold itself as pro-war but then the plot goes on and you realize oh wait no we're doing fucked up things it's an anti-war yeah and it never took off like call of duty did (laughs) so conspiracy maybe i don't know but also back to the televised thing and back to barry goldwater wait hold on can i give my second response to what you said oh and then... yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> no i'm sorry but no it's just, yeah it kind of ties into all of this it's all related but uh, what i was going to say is simply that uh, i don't think this is related to whether the war is whether the army is uh, created via conscription or uh, voluntary in air quotes means uh, i think this is just part of you know the gradual development of the market it's an unfortunate aspect of the state is that uh, as we become more productive and as as our society becomes wealthier uh, wars become less noticeable to us in wealthy mm-hmm. countries the state can take more and more of the wealth and uh, that we produce and and put it towards evil means and we just notice it less because we're getting so much better off materially we just can produce mm-hmm. so much more that we don't even notice how much worse off we are because again we don't have a counterfactual to compare it to we don't even know how much better off we could be if they weren't uh, mm-hmm. weren't taking these resources and going and bombing people with them instead of doing something productive 
but uh, we even despite all that, we still you know progress over time, and and so total war I think might be a thing of the past, which to a certain extent is a good thing, but it also allows states to to wage war without citizens really feeling the strain of it anymore, which isn't a great thing for for the future of warfare. I mean, we don't want war to be unnoticeable. It it destroys people's lives. And of course, it's always unnoticeable until it comes back to you. And and then of course you notice it, you notice it good and hard. And, uh, and so that is, that is a scary prospect that as we become wealthier, the state can just take more and more of that wealth and we straight up don't notice it anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's dangerous for our, our progression. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Barry Goldwater, so, oh yeah, I no, because your camera's off, so I didn't see if you're going to speak or not. But it's a quick thing. It goes back also to just the, the, the things we do see. Yeah, I can see you now. But it, the, the just the evolution of televised war. Going back to Vietnam, going back to Barry Goldwater. The reason he lost to Lyndon B. Johnson was because Johnson put out this this campaign ad, this this uh, commercial, where you have a little girl in a field with a daisy. And she's plucking off the bits of the daisy and there's a countdown going on and it ends with a nuclear strike because Johnson's whole point was Lyndon B. John, uh, Barry Goldwater is going to get us all nuked because he always keeps nukes on the table. And it's funny because Goldwater was more anti-war than Johnson, as we would see, (laughs) because Johnson is the one that pushed us into Vietnam. (laughs) But then you go to one or two years ago, and Trump drump, dropping the Moab in Afghanistan is a televised event where people are like, wow, we just dropped the biggest bomb we've ever developed. How insane is that? Yeah. And it makes mass murder like exciting, these... which is disgusting. Yeah. It, which is, yeah, it's awful. And speaking of these like politicians, right? Like you'll get after the, the Bush administration got uh, voted out um, after two terms. Uh, Obama came in swinging, like sure to you know say I'm going to save us from this recession. Which I mean, <laughs> different episode, but <laughs> in the short term, yeah, different episode in the short term. Uh, yeah, but long term, he screwed us. But anyway, another one of his points that he was hitting was he was hitting. Oh, I'm going to you know I plan on either you know lessening the troops in the war or just getting re- like ending the war entirely. That that was sort of his. Uh, some of his points and then 2016 Trump came in with sort of the same message like these wars are dumb and then guess what none of that happened and nobody cared he sells it's obvious that peace sells people love it they want it but then once they don't have it it's something that it's like a soda you don't need it to survive you like it but you don't notice it when you don't have it so when somebody's coming in and selling you a soda you want it but then they don't give it to you and you don't give a shit Right. And like, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq have been, has been going on for 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you. And so literally all of my, I mean, yeah, literally all of my life, I've never seen a United States mm-hmm. at peace. Yeah. So I don't know what peace looks like. Mm-hmm. I don't. And that's sad. That's. Mm-hmm. And like, um, going back to, you know, Porter said, there's not any ways we feel war anymore see the effects of it don't one way that is apparent to me and it's ironic because it's a problem that uh the people who cheer on war have a problem with at mass mass immigration um 
talking about the people that come over from South America, Central America, you know, Latin America in general to, uh, to the U.S., a lot of that is because of the proxy wars we had in the 80s because of the Cold War under Reagan. Uh, same with Africans coming over into uh, cities on the East Coast like Philadelphia, New York. A lot of them come over because of proxy wars between the Soviet Union and America, again, in the 80s under Reagan. Um, so a lot of them come over because of that. And a lot of, you know, Islamic people uh, in the Middle East or Central Africa come over to America for the same reasons because of the wars we are in right now. And it's funny to me because a lot of the people who have a problem with these people coming over to our country, they are the same people that cheer on these wars. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they think you're a, a pussy if you want to end them. They think you're un-American if you're against them. And... Uh, it's just the it's a vicious circle and that's not just that war is a vicious circle government in general is a vicious circle with just many vicious circles within it right and and people think libertarians are bad on uh on uh judging who's a libertarian and who's not look at look at the um you know american look on war if you don't support the war you're not a real american guys that's part of the propaganda effort i talked about like how you have to have a total propaganda state in order to convince people to go to war voluntarily that's part of it you're not a real american if you don't support the war you're you know you're a glorious patriot warrior if you join the army uh go shoot goat farmers in afghanistan Uh, (laughs) yeah lose your legs see your buddies get blown up (laughs) yeah Die for Israel. <laughs> hey, hey, die for Israel and Saudi Arabia. <laughs> there we go. Yep. Kill poor people, get some free college. And the Fed. <laughs> so how long have we been going, y'all? Uh, about let's an hour. Going. All right. I so got, y'all want I want to I got a let's hit on central banking really quick. Talk about. Okay, cool. I think yeah. we should finish up on, on where we go from here. Like how to how do we, you know, end war if that's obviously that's our goal, but like if that's even a, a reasonable possible goal. Uh, how do we how do we do it? But before we get there, um, I mentioned earlier I, I'd kind of been thinking about like a rough dichotomy between uh, dispute wars and imperialist wars. I, something I, something else I've been thinking about, kind of kind of like Jay's been thinking about conscription versus uh, voluntary uh, armies, is, is kind of the evolution of imperialist wars. Like uh, there's always they've always existed since they've been more powerful and less powerful groups of people and more and less powerful states. Uh, the the more powerful ones have tried to extract resources uh, from from the less powerful ones. Uh, so one evolution of that, I think, is to an extent they've become more ideological. Starting with uh, especially like Wilson, um, he I, I really don't think he had many economic aims in, in joining World War One and stuff like that. I, he didn't you know intend to go extract resources from Europe by joining World War, World War One. He he I think he meant it when he said he wanted to make the world safe for democracy. Uh, which is disgusting. <laughs> He's been <laughs> so, so they've, they've gotten more ideological is one thing. I think that might be a result of increasing wealth in society. You know, you can afford to be ideological about war when you can leech so much off the productive market um, as as someone in, in a position of power in the state. Uh, that's just a rough theory. I really don't. I, I need to think that over more. But it's something interesting to think about. And then. To the extent that they are still economic, uh, are, motivi- are motivated by just material resource interests. Uh, like I, I do think, uh, for example, the Gulf War in the 90s um, 
under under Clinton was I think Clinton. Do I have that Bush. Right? Bush. Okay, sorry, Bush. Uh, Bush won. That that was pretty much all about oil. <laughs> like and everyone knew it. No one even denies that for the most part. And the new world order. Yeah, that too. He even said that. <laughs> Uh, that can't those words came out of his mouth yeah <laughs> so uh so they do still get waged to gather resources from the countries they're waged in or waged against but uh, especially with the advent of central banking when you can uh yes when when you can basically inflate your currency to infinitely pay for wars of course we know it's not infinite that isn't you know wealth doesn't come from nowhere and these wars you do use up material wealth so you can't wage it infinitely but it's been able to mask the costs a lot more at home. Uh, with the advent of that, imperialist wars are sometimes waged not to steal resources from other countries, but to have an excuse to steal resources more from your own people. Uh, it, that's that's something else I, I've just been thinking about, uh, especially like with the Federal Reserve's policies, uh, just the, the way that the military industrial complex and the military media complex and the military credit pol- uh, complex, they all uh, are, are just ways to basically extract wealth from American citizens in the war effort. Uh, it's all, you know, the propaganda and then the industrial complex that all, um, all coalesces around this, this one, uh, one goal to get, get more money, and more resources out of the American taxpayer. Uh, and not even, it's not even about, I mean, what, what are you going to steal from Yemen? There's nothing there anymore. And so it's, it's Um, it's about exploiting people at home now. And that that creates a whole different incentive structure, which is uh, fascinating to me. It's something I need to think more about, but it's an evolution I've, I've identified in these imperialist style wars. um, One thing that I found funny that I learned about um, is one of the uh, operation names for the one of the Iraq wars. I can't remember which one. There's been so many. Um, one of the uh, I think it was I think it was like Bush two's uh, war on uh, Saddam Hussein. But I think they had the original name for the operation was Operation Iraqi yeah, Liberation. Iraqi phonetically, Iraqi well, it, it originally oh. it was Liberation, but phonetically or uh, the acronym would have been <laughs> Oil. <laughs> So they changed it to freedom. That's hilarious. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, B.S. Stratty, you got some? Um, I mean, I, I just, not really. I just wanted to, are we going to get into now the, what's it called? The, what, what is, what is to be done? Yeah. Because that's where I can, I, I think tackling, yeah, we could talk about the Federal Reserve there. Okay. Yeah. Let's get um, that. You, you care if I start? Not at all. Go ahead. So, um, yeah, I mean, what is to be done? There's so much to be done about uh, the war problem specifically, but the two things that pop up into my mind is, first off, I think the strategy that uh, is to be used, and I think it's the best strategy to kind of get a influence uh, across the board, is uh, populism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think... I've been learning, I've been reading into more right-wing populism, not just from Rothbard, but from other people in our circles. And uh, it seems that populism was the best way of getting the anti-war feelings going in people. Like, uh, Jay, I think you brought up the, you know, New York Mm -hmm. and that they were mad about getting subscriptions for secession. Um, Look at the, you know, old right whenever World War II happened. 
they had the America First movement. A great book to read on that is uh, Defend America First by Greg Garrett. It follows editorials around World War II. Um, however, I think populism uh, could, be, could work now. I think uh, as much as, as anti-political as we are, and uh, you don't need to support a candidate, you don't need to vote, but I think like what Rothbard did with uh, Buchanan in the 90s, I think if that happened again, it would pay off to some degree with at least just spreading influence. So I think that's one thing that could work. I think uh, also just a breakdown of power, decentralization. The more power we can take away from the state, the less power the state has to wage wars. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a very important way to do things. And uh, just increasing the free market, just increasing trade, taking peaceful solutions with these people, and friendships through trade rather than enemies through non-trade uh, i think that realization will take us far but um what about y'all what are some ideas y'all have um i mean and, and also it's like populism doesn't necessarily have to be you know political it could be yeah. uh and this is mentioned in the previous episode um the mises institute could mm-hmm. be considered a um an organization of populism since it is, you know, trying to teach economics and um, philosophy, uh, more economics uh, to, I think it was like the, the average person audience. Yeah. Right. It was like Roth and Rothbard was like, especially good at this mm-hmm. with his writing. Cause he wrote with the layman in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I, I mean, got no fucking, I, I saw you. I've honestly haven't thought of for a while. How do we end? Cause I've just been under the assumption like, Oh mm-hmm. fuck, we're just never getting out of these until the state collapses <laughs> from its perpetual warfare. Because you know, as much as I like a gore strategy, you can't counter economy your way out of a war because that's something out of your control right. and they fund it through inflation anyway. So you can take away your tax money from them and they're just, they're just going to keep printing, keep funding it. So Mm-hmm. I, I don't really quite I think know. the most I think the most uh, and this has been said a lot uh, but it is really important to just keep stating and keep stating and keep stating is that I mean education is probably the most important thing that we have in our arsenal mm-hmm. is educating people on the ethics of liberty and taking away the state's power especially with um, like getting out of the public education system and, you know, homeschooling and, and all that, and just stripping the government, its power from um, indoctrinating children into thinking that the state is great and all mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I, so I agree with both Jay and Aiden and of course, Stratty too. I mean, I don't, don't disagree with anything. Yes, Stratty, yeah. So, so yeah, first of all, I do think education is, the right way to go i don't know there's a quote from some american guy i don't remember who said it uh basically there's a lot of yeah basically that that war will finally be be stopped when young men stop agreeing to go fight it and and so i mean that that's just at this point education when they have a voluntary army uh their propaganda state becomes that much harder to fight but uh but necessary to fight Uh, and i mean we mentioned we talked about video games a little bit earlier uh, the line is one of those you can use media, yeah. you know, as as a counter propaganda tool. Um, you know, <laughs> you make games like The Line instead of Black Ops, uh, mm-hmm. and 
and that that's one role. And then of course, places like the Mises Institute, antiwar.com, these are accessible to the average person. Uh, if someone's like, why are you anti-war? You can send them a link now that they can read real quick. Uh, they just need to take the effort. That's the amazing thing about the internet is like everything you can get information mm -hmm. just like that. So that's one thing. But then I, so one of the student groups I'm involved with on my campus, we invited a guy named Doug Bandeau uh, last fall. So about a year ago now to come speak at my campus. And uh, he, he did a, a speech on kind of the, the state of American foreign policy, just in general. He talked about Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, all these, all these places that were uh, still waging war in. And um, for those of those people who don't know him, he's, uh, he's one of the anti-war guys at uh, the Cato Institute. So he's actually, I mean, he's pretty moderate. He's like a constitutionalist, but in terms of war, he's, he's very strongly anti-war. He's certainly not a moderate in that, in that sense. He's a good guy. I like him a lot. Um, so he, yeah, he works for the Cato Institute. He writes for National Review every once in a while, which is uh, kind of ironic because National Review is overall very uh, neoconservative <laughs> and very pro-war in general. But uh, he, he, most of his writing there is focusing on like uh, on Christian stuff. But he writes Christian anti-war things on on National Review every once every once in a while. Surprised they publish him, but um, yeah, a, a good guy. But I, I asked him, you know, because someone who's overall like a pretty moderate person on the American political spectrum towards the libertarian side, certainly, but not extremists like any of us. Uh, I asked him like, how do you think wars are going to end? Like what's, what's the path out of this for America? And he gave a very black pilled answer. <laughs> it was, he, I, he, he said, I don't think we're going to end them by other, any other means than they collapse under their own weight. He, he said that. I was like, I was surprised to hear that from someone like him. He says, I don't think that we're going to have a president who can pull all, all the troops out. I, I don't think anybody has the moral courage to do it. I, I think it's going to be some sort of credit collapse, uh, some sort of uh, just a resounding defeat because uh, we lack the will and the, the proper strategy to fight over there anymore. He says there's going to be some sort of collapse that, that finally ends these wars for us because we won't end them on our own. We're too deep in. And uh, that was really surprising to hear from someone so moderate. And that kind of uh, woke me up. I, I kind of lost all hope for a political solution. Uh, I would consider the, the populist like education strategy to still be an anti-political solution. Um, so, so I don't know. It's got to be some combination of those two. But hearing that from someone who's overall moderate, like Doug Bandeau, um, it, I, I, I think he's right, unfortunately. I wish there was another easier way, but I think it's going to be a rude awakening when that finally happens. Uh, I don't, I mean, there's no way to predict how soon it could come and what exactly that, that, that kind of collapse, that, what that process is going to look like. But I, I really do think that's the only way. I'm kind of with Jay in that regard. Well, um, is, does anyone else have anything to say right there? Because I want to talk about two books I think are, should be essential reading on this subject. Go on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so earlier, I think it was Porter who made this point that central banking has changed war. And um, a great book to read about uh, that and how that kind of came into play and also how even during the development of the Federal Reserve here in America, uh, imperialists imperialist wars were getting launched more and more um i recommend the origins of the federal reserve by murray rothbard 
Um, I, I believe it's part of another book, but you can also buy just this off Mises for like five bucks. But um, there's a chapter in there called, uh, let's see, hold on, I have it right here. There's a chapter in there called Charles A. Connaught, Surplus Capital and Economic Imperialism. And then right after that, it talks about Connaught, Monetary Imperialism and the Gold Exchange Standard. And it kind of goes into how, you know, it became beneficial for bankers and such to rob these places of their resources and launch these wars and um, really shows you how yeah war changed because of that it gave war more power and I mean not that there's ever any kind of honorable war but it made war more disgusting in a sense um, and then the second book and Aiden you brought up Ron Paul earlier and this is what I wanted to save it for because this book had uh, a lot of influence on me and kind of made me want to take a focus on foreign policy and that's a foreign policy of freedom uh peace commerce and honest friendship by ron paul and it's just a collection of speeches he made on the uh house floor uh regarding foreign policy but you in it you kind of just learn how counterproductive and intuitive counterintuitive american foreign policy is like uh one thing i learned was america we were paying for we were subsidizing communist nations that were ruled by the soviets in the 80s to stay afloat like poland uh even though they were our enemies uh quote unquote and also we built the bridges that the soviets used to cross into afghanistan <laughs> where before the soviet afghan war started and yet we claimed we had to to you know, fund the Afghans because we wanted to end communism. And, and obviously there's more to play there, but I recommend those two books, especially you can find them both on uh, Mises.org for less than 10 bucks each, I think. And I think, the, I think you can actually find them both as just PDFs, but they're a great read. And uh, Aiden, you brought up the Ron Paul campaign ad. How about you talk about that? Yes. Um, so the, the Ron Paul campaign ad was probably, is probably my, like one of the best videos I would say that you could ever watch, um, detailing how war works. Um, I'm not going to, uh, spoil it or anything, but it basically, essentially the gist of it is it, it takes the war in the Middle East and what we're doing over there and just flips the narrative of, Hey, what if Russia or China was doing it to us? Like, what if they had bases in our country? How would you feel? And Ron Paul does an amazing job at basically, you know, telling a, a story and, and giving that emotional drive. So you can like, it basically gives people a visceral sort of really real uh, reaction to that kind of stuff. And I think that's what part of the reason why he was so successful apart from being just, a wonderful human being. Oh. And um, I think it's before we leave, I, you know, um, I, I forgot who it was that was talking about this, but they were talking about how libertarians don't necessarily need to uh, go to one side or the other when it comes to issues, but we can create coalitions against certain issues. And uh, I know two people that, you know, we, all of us love that were a part of coalitions that were anti-war were, or three people were Ron Paul, uh, Lou Rockwell, and Murray Rothbard. Um, 
Lou Rockwell has written about going to Marxist conventions, leftist conventions, and giving anti-war speeches and being cheered on by people who had shirts that said Workers of the World Unite and such. And then I know we had Walter Block on an episode, and he talked about how him and Murray Rothbard joined the Peace and Freedom Party and were voting for rent control just because these were the only people that would vote with them on being anti-war. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's not a – you don't have to sell yourselves out whenever you, you know, can find an issue that there's solidarity on with someone that is a polar opposite of you. But it's important to understand that, hey, for everyone, it's, in, it's a benefit for everyone to oppose war, to end war. So – I, I, that war is one issue I do uh, think we should build coalitions on. Yeah, this is like, like if somebody asks me uh, what my political beliefs are, I tell them that my, my number one issue, is, first and foremost, always, always is war and peace. And that's, yes. that's always most important to me because it just it affects the greatest number of people and it's tied to so many other aspects of state oppression. That's. Mm-hmm. All right. Is that the, yeah, you, you had one more thing you wanted to say? Was that it? Yeah, if everyone else is, is done, I think we're going to wrap up. This has been a pretty long episode, but a good one, something necessary to talk yeah. about. Uh, mm-hmm. One more thing before we go. Um, anyone who's, who's religious or inclined to prayer uh, or Christian like me, um, if, if anyone wants to join, uh, you know, join me in prayer, I've been praying for the people in Armenia and Azerbaijan, especially our, our Christian brothers in Armenia uh, with the war going on over there. Uh, from what I know, I'm not a geopolitical expert, like I said earlier. I don't know all the details of this conflict. From what I know, it seems like uh, Azerbaijan is the aggressor in this instance, and the Armenians are defending themselves. But um, uh, either way, there are tons of, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of innocent civilians on, on all sides and super young fighters who think they are doing the right thing and being manipulated by their own politicians uh, over there fighting and dying and being caught up in the conflict. And uh, it's just a, you know, a really sad situation. So uh, if anyone, uh, anyone is of the praying type, I'd ask you to, to pray for them as well, um, especially just because of the, the nature of that conflict that's been going on for so long. And uh, on the first day of the Azerbaijan invasion, Armenia released a list of 16 of their fighters who were killed uh, in the initial attack. And uh, at least five or six of them were under my age, like 19 or, or younger. And uh, that, that really messes with me. So uh, yeah, just, just pray for those people over there. And uh, with that, I think we'll close up. Yep. All right. This was a great one. Everyone, thanks for watching. Share the show with friends. Um, 